drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. The quarter deck. Lights, lights, lights. Get online right now. You got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarter Deck. I am your host, Miguel, The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarter Deck with Miguel of the Gunny Signs. This week on The Quarter Deck, we're going to go ahead and look into a little bit more detail with our book, with the 1st Marine Division, No Better Friend, No Worst Enemy. And last week, we talked about the force protection and how the important was for the division to have a force protection plan, even though they were in the country of a Kuwait. So it's very important that they got that into place. But this week... We're going to look into talking about the logistical planning and the rehearsal to make sure that the division had everything put together to ensure that they were ready to go in that fight from Kuwait into Iraq and fighting their way all the way up into Baghdad. In our hero highlights this week, we're taking a look at Sergeant Daryl Samuel Cole, United States Marine Corps, another Medal of Honor recipient. Now, he's with us from Flat River, Missouri, and we're going to look into a lot more of the detail in what he did to accomplish the role in earning himself the Congressional Medal of Honor. The Quarterdeck. We're in our second week of January, and so far, the weeks already in this month have gone very, very fast. And it's hard to believe that the time is going to start moving again, and it's very hard to believe that we're already in 20. 23 and I can remember being back in the barracks in 1999 when everybody was making a big deal about the calendars and everything turning into the year 2000 when they said that everything was going to fall apart ATMs were going to break computers were going to go crazy because they weren't prepared for them to turn over to the year 2000 so it's been a long time since then well, actually 23 years since then and I remember that specifically because during that time in 99 I was actually on restriction and couldn't go anywhere for the Christmas holidays. So I was stuck in the barracks for New Year's and Christmas because I did something retarded and I couldn't go on liberty even though we were about to deploy. My pre-deployment leave was canceled because of me getting in trouble and so I was stuck there in the barracks. But it's so funny that, you know, so much time has gone by so quickly and I don't know where the time went. I mean, 20 plus years of active duty in the Marine Corps flew by so quickly. And that's one of the things that I talk to a lot about with the young Marines nowadays is the fact that before they know it, their time of active duty in the service is going to go ahead and be up. So they got to make sure that they have a plan and they're ready to go with something now that they're about to get out of the service because for whatever length of time they were in the service, whether it was four years, 20 years or whatever, they've been living their life in a routine manner for the whole time that they've been in the service. Somebody tells them what time they got to be at work, when they got to get up, when they go at lunch, when they go to the doctor, when they go get their shots, all those things that somebody is telling them all that stuff. And now that they're getting out of the service, this is going to be on their own. So if they don't go to the dentist and they become a yuck mouth, as I always tell them, you know, it's going to be on them. They're the ones that are responsible to make sure that they make it to the doctor's office, to the dentist, whatever, whatever they have to do. 
So it's important to make sure that they understand all that stuff. So for me, that time flew by so quickly. I mean, I enlisted in the Marine Corps on September 6th of 1995. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a long time ago, but uh, I'm going to tell you, the time flew by so quickly. I can remember from way back when, when I was a young PFC, well, actually, let's go back even further. Let's go back to when I actually enlisted in the Marine Corps. You know, I was talking to the recruiter back then, Gunnery Sergeant Tracy Freeman. I don't know where he's at or what he's doing now. And hopefully he's still out there doing the things that he loved to do. I know that one thing that he liked to do, he liked racing on the track. He had a motorcycle that he used to always race out there in the track, out there in Kentucky. So hopefully he's out there doing great things. And, you know, hopefully one day I will run back into him. During my senior year of high school, he was set up in the cafeteria area with all the pamphlets, all those things that he had from the Marine Corps, the jobs, the opportunities, and all those things that recruiters are there to give to the high school students to try to get him to enlist into the Marine Corps. All the recruiters went there. We had Army, Navy, Air Force. They went there and set up and all that stuff. But however, the Marine Corps recruiter caught my attention. One, the uniform. And two, the challenge. Now, as many of you guys know, for those of you that have been following me in my podcast for many, many, many episodes, my father was in the Army. And I never took that against him because it's the Army and <laughs> we make fun of each other all the time. And of course, some of you are going to say, well, every branch of service has a uniform. Yes, they do. However, the most recognizable uniform that people see is the United States Marine uniform because of the way that it looks. I mean, I mean, really. Does any other uniform in the service compare to the United States Marine Corps dress blue uniform? <laughs> no, no way in hell does any of those uniforms compare to that way that things look. I mean, look, you can put that uniform on. You can have the most heinous looking man in the world. We can put Pee Wee Herman into a dress blue uniform and he is going to be a chick magnet. <laughs> And I'm just kidding. I'm not being sexist, but you guys get the point. You guys understand exactly what I'm getting at. So that was important. I wanted to be challenged in life. You know, so many things growing up in high school were already challenging enough as it was. Here I was a Hispanic young teenager in Kentucky. Okay. In Kentucky, there are not very, very many Hispanics that are there. And yes, there is a military base there. There's a a lot of various ethnicities and individuals that are there. But I went to school out in town. Not too many Hispanics that were there. So it made life a little bit challenging, you know, and everybody believes that racism is not really a big deal. But, you know, it, it does exist. And that's something that you kind of get used to. But, you know, I have tough skin. I've always grown up with, by having tough skin. Does that make it okay? No, it does not make it okay, but whatever. It never got to the point and to the extent that it was something that really, really affected me throughout the life when I was living there in Kentucky. Throughout high school, or even I should say when I was in junior high, when my dad was stationed in Bamberg, Germany, I started taking the JROTC classes, the military science classes that they offer in the high schools. Now over there in Germany, they actually allowed the junior high students, the seventh and eighth graders to actually enroll in those classes as well as an elective. And so I did that. When my dad got transferred over to Kentucky out there in Fort Knox, in Fort Knox High School, they also had the program, so I continued that. Now, the one thing is that the JROTC programs that were there offered in those particular schools was Army JROTC. 
So I did that in high school when I was there at Fort Knox. And in Fort Knox, I did my ninth and 10th grade years of high school there. And then after that, I transferred out to North Harden High School out there in Kentucky to do my last two years, my junior and my senior year before I graduated school. Now, if you guys can remember in that time frame in the 90s, that was back then when General Colin Powell was making a big deal stating that JROTC in the high schools was a program that allowed individuals to be able to learn more things. And so he made it a point to ensure that those programs were made available in more schools. Now, when I transferred over to North Harden High School, that was the first year that they were going to have a JROTC program there at the school. Now, since I came from Fort Knox and I was already in the program, I got there and I was promoted to the rank of Sergeant First Class, I believe. So I was one of the more senior you know, students that were there in the school. And I was able to actually help to make the program more pleasable to the individuals that were there, I guess you could say. But it allowed me to make sure that we had all the things that we needed to have in place. We had our instructors that were there, you know, our senior instructor and our instructors that were going through all the classes. You know, one of the things that I participated in a lot when I was down there in Fort Knox was the drill team, the color guard and so forth with the JROTC programs. And we used to go to a lot of competitions and compete and so forth against other schools that had the JROTC programs. Now, when I got there to the actual school in North Harden, uh, first Arden Thomason, great individual great mentor, had a lot of leadership and stuff. And unfortunately, he passed away two years or three years after I graduated high school. But he was the one that was going through basically all the instruction and so forth. And one day I asked him, like, hey, can we start the drill team in the color guard and stuff and possibly be able to go compete in some of these competitions? I remember the first thing that he told me was, this is our first year of having the program. There is no way that we are going to be competitive enough to go out there and participate in these programs. And my answer to him was, okay, then how are we going to be able to show these other programs, these other schools that we are for real, that that the program that we have here is something that we're going to make the best that we have. And we are going to push ourselves to make sure that we're competitive to go out there and compete against those other schools. I guess I made it a point and he kind of took into consideration what I was saying. And we started doing drill team and color guard because we asked students that were there that who would be interested in participating in those extracurricular activities because it would require for us to be able to do practice and rehearsal after school and sometimes before school started to make sure that we were ready to go. We were getting everything put together and we had no weapons yet. You know, the JROTC programs get issued demilitarized weapons to do that. And right back then we had the 1903 Springfield rifles is what we used for the drill teams and the color guard and so forth. But we had none. So the only things that we were competing in were the unarmed categories because we had no weapon. Now I can remember that James Eastridge and I, we wanted to participate in the fancy drill competition as a duel. And what that is, is those, you see the JRTC programmers of the cadets And you see the Marine Corps silent drill team. The Army has a drill team and stuff. We needed weapons. We had no weapons for us to be able to use. So what I did was I went back to Fort Knox. (laughs) And I talked to Sergeant Major Mike Sell. He was one of the instructors down there. Unfortunately, he has passed away since then as well. 
and I asked him, Sergeant Major, uh, we're starting the program down there in North Harden. We have no weapons. Is there any possible way that we can borrow four weapons so we can do our training and be able to compete in the drill events that we're going to get enrolled in to be able to go compete? The first team he asked you was, okay, so you want me to lend you some weapons so you can compete against us? And I was like, well, I didn't think of it that way, but I guess, yeah. And the only thing he asked me, like, hey, have your instructor, have uh, First Sergeant Thomas and contact me and we'll see what we can do. And they talked and they were, we were able to get some weapons lended to us so we can practice and learn and be ready to go and compete. So we did that for, you know, about three or four competitions as we went through. Now, we did all the training after school, like I mentioned, and we had to go through a lot of hoops because sometimes the gymnasium in our school was busy, was occupied. They didn't want us to practice there because what if we dropped something, it would mess up the court and all this, you know, all this junk that they were going through. So they were making it kind of difficult for us to do that. So what we ended up doing is we had an, another elementary school across the way from our high school. And we were able to talk to the principal there at the school and they allowed us to be able to use their gymnasium as a place for us to actually be able to go practice. So we did all those rehearsals, all these practices, and we finally got fundraisers into place that allowed us to get the money that we had to pay to go in and compete in these competitions. So we ended up going there in our first competition that we went there. And of course, the Fort Knox drill team was there from the school that I was at. We competed in the color guard the unarmed platoon and we had the fancy drill team duo combination and all those different things. And once we went there, we did all the competitions and stuff. We ended up winning first place for the color guard, first place for the unarmed drill. And we got second place in the duo for the fancy drill. So we made our mark. We were able to show everybody that, Hey, we are for real. We're here and we're ready to compete. So with that, it allowed me to be able to help to start that whole entire program to what it is today. And from what I found out today, the actual drill team and the color guards and the whole JROTC program there at North Harden High School has gotten better throughout time. I mean, that time that we were there, in the second year that we were there, we won the Distinguished Honors Award for our program. Now, if you think about it, this was just our second year of the actual program during the school. And basically, for those of you that don't know how the JROTC program works, yes, we have the instructors there. However, all the stuff that needs to be done is delegated down to the actual students. So we had our own little military ball, all those things, and all that was ran by the students. By the time that I graduated from high school, I was actually the cadet commander in charge of all the cadets and all the things that we ended up and having to do. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that we did when we were there, when I was the cadet commander in my senior year of high school, was that we were the ones that were responsible for putting up the colors and taking them down at the end of the school day. And this was something that, you know, the janitors and the custodians always did. But we talked to the vice principal and the principal said, okay. And the reason I said that was because we were the ones conducting all the military classes you know, the military science classes, the history and all that stuff. And that I felt that it was appropriate for us to be able to do the actual color raising in the morning to make sure that, you know, we're doing it correctly. We wanted to make sure that the students learn how to do that stuff. So that's one of the things that we ended up doing. And I believe that even till today, 
they still do that. They do the the colors in the morning, and of course, all the football games, the color guard goes out there, presents the colors, and so forth, and all those different things that we started way back then, back in 1994. So, man, yeah, I mean, even from back then, my gosh, how much time has gone by, and some of the things that you're able to accomplish when you go back and look and think about what you did, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, it's time flies. I guess it's really true when people say, hey, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> I guess so. You know, now that I think about it, so many things have happened in my life. And, you know, we're going to go through some of those things. I want to go back and reflect on some of the things that have happened, even from back when I remember that when I was growing up, when we were living in Juarez, Mexico, when I was four or five years old, those are some of the things that I can actually remember, you know, and it's funny because, you know, some of the things that you're able to remember in life, you think about them and you're like, wow, yeah, I remember doing that. But my grandparents are one of the things that I remember very, very dearly. They are the ones that I remember because they used to throw me small birthday parties. They weren't the biggest in the world. And really, I didn't care. And those are memories that I really have, really have. You know, and I don't know if it's sad to say because I tell my wife all the time, I don't have too many memories of things that we did as a family with my father, my mother, my brother. I mean, I know some of the things that we did, but it wasn't something that kind of stood out to me that, hey, I said, hey, you know, I remember that I did this with my parents. I did this and that. Or they took us anywhere, you know, on vacation or anything that we went did. And it's sad, you know, it makes me feel bad that I don't remember those things. And I guess that's one of the reasons that today that I try to make more memories with my son, especially in Halloween. My little man, man, he's getting into Halloween probably as much as I do because he's always telling me like, Dad, when, you know, later on in life, I want to have all these same decorations that you have and I want to be able to share them with my kids as well. So that way they know that Halloween is an important holiday because we are able to actually do some good things here for our neighbors and watch the kids come here and get candy from us. And, you know, that just made me smile because that's something that he's going to remember. He's going to remember the times that me and him spent together in the garage, putting all of our animatronics together and actually getting them ready to go for Halloween. Because, you know, I never had memories like that. Our house was never decorated with lights outside for Halloween or anything, or even Christmas. I never remember having Christmas lights up in our house for Christmas. Yeah, we had a Christmas tree, but I don't remember any of that stuff. And to me, that's kind of important. And I think that's why I do it now. That's why I do it now. And, you know, God, I spoil the hell out of my son, and I buy him all kinds of stuff. My daughters, yeah, I buy them stuff. But with him, now he's the little one. He's the youngest one, and I never had half of the things that this little guy has. You know, and I think that's basically probably because I never had him when I was growing up. But hey, everybody's got their story. And here in the next couple of weeks, you're going to learn a little bit more about me. The Quarter Deck is brought to you by Miguel Science Photography. From the beginning of your family to the first birthday and beyond, 
Whether it's a retirement or a Marine Corps ball, Miguel Science Photography is there to make memories that will last a lifetime. Miguel Science Photography is a certified veteran-owned business. Contact them at miguelsciencephotography.com. What we're going to do right here is go back. Way back. Back into time. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Quarter Deck with Miguel the Gunny Signs. Now, if you can remember last week, we talked about the actual preparation of the division to ensure that they were ready to go and that the force protection was put into place now that all the division and all the units in the division were in their respected camps training and getting prepared to actually cross the border into Iraq. Now, if you guys remember, uh, the actual individual that was helping them, Major Hassan, gave them a lot of intel, a lot of information on how they expected the actual Iraqi army, the regime, and everything like that to actually act and conduct themselves when they were attacked or what they might do when the United States forces were pushing through from Kuwait all the way into Baghdad. This week, we're going to talk about logistics planning and rehearsal and what the division actually did to prepare to ensure that all the logistical items and everything were done correctly to make sure that it made the process of going from Kuwait into Iraq, it made it more easy to do and to make sure that everything was put into play. Now, I can tell you guys from our experience when we were there, we ran out of ammunition almost to the point that we had absolutely none in the artillery community because we were pushing up so fast that the logistics were having a little issue keeping up with the division as we were moving into Baghdad. Now I can remember that, you know, our shortage of water got down a little bit. So we kind of consumed water, but we were monitoring how much water we were actually consuming as we were pushing forward. Same thing goes with our MREs. We had to kind of monitor how many MREs we were consuming when we were getting ready to do the push into Iraq. So let's go ahead and look at what they actually did for their planning and see what the division had into place in order to get where they were going. As units receive weapons and vehicles from the MPF shipping and their own equipment via strategic airlift, modifications and upgrades that began in garrison continued in the field. The Division Ordnance Readiness Team, led by Major Greg Fritch, was instrumental in working with the United States Marine Corps and theater agencies to source assets that enhance both the division's lethally and survivability. After establishing close liaison with the CFLCC at Camp Doha, Chief Warrant Officer Rod Fien procured nearly 4,000 combat identification and thermal identification panels, CIPs and TIPs, respectively, for the division. Marines from the 1st and 2nd Tank Battalions attached CIPs to their M1 Alpha-1s to identify the tanks and reduce the chance of fraticide. Remaining division units attached TIPs to wheel vehicles for the same purpose. Similar initiatives were pursued in the design, development, and installation of the Blue Forge Tracker and Mobile Data Automated Communications Terminal, or the MDACT, systems. Working in collaboration with Major Thad Trapp of Marksport Syscom and the United States Marine Corps Weapons Station in Crane, Indiana, 
Major Fritsch was responsible for coordinating and modification of the division's shoulder-launched multi-purpose assault weapon, or the small. In total, techniques regularized in sighting systems of over 720 smalls to allow them to better withstand combat and accommodate firing of the novel explosive, or any. A thermomatic blast warhead with tremendous explosive power. On this and numerous other issues, the staff of Marxist Siskarm worked tirelessly in support of the divisions and its Marines, seizing only when units moved to dispersal areas, or the DAs, and attack positions, or AP. From the earliest days of the planning through the division's movement into the final positions for the attack, Marshal Siscom insisting support was felt daily. The CG and the staff of the Marxist-Com earned a division's gratitude many times over. With equipment on hand and modifications ongoing, providing the units with resources from training and combat was the next order of business. The meticulous and comprehensive planning efforts of Lieutenant Colonel Kyle Gentry, the 11th Marines Regiment S-4 officer, and Captain Tim Collins, the division's ammunition chief officer, would prove crucial to the artillery regiment and RCT success during combat. These Marines developed a plan that sequentially staged, drew, and fired ammunition by lot number in order to provide the greatest accuracy for the regiment's Survey 5 M198 howitzers. Working with all division's units, and first, FFSG ammunition technicians, the G4 ammunition section designed and pre-staged numerous ammunition resupply packages, each tailored to a particular mission. The Division G4 sourced humanitarian daily rations, or the HDRs, and distributed two cases to each vehicle in the division. At their discretion, commanders would distribute the HDRs to alleviate food shortages or as a demonstration of goodwill to Iraqis caught up in the war and in need. The Marines intended to give the Iraqi people an introduction to a different kind of army, one that bore the resemblance of Saddam's oppressors. In keeping with the commanding general's intent to be most air-centric division in history, the CG Third Maw's intent to rapidly open forward arming and refueling points, or FARPs, in the division's wake. The G4 initiated planning with Marine Wing Support Group 37 MWSG 37, commanded by Colonel Mike Anderson. The quick thinking planners at the MWSG designed Rotary Wing FARP opening package designed to extend time on station of the Hueys and Cobras. The division's G4 plans officer, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Moyer, and the MWSG-37 operations officer, Lieutenant Colonel Flish, worked to integrate these fart packages into tactical columns of the RCT, allowing for quick setup and extending the reach of the division's air arm. Farts will be placed as far as forward as possible primarily to provide fuel and ammunition to rotary wing aircraft flying in support of the maneuvering elements. 
As the division continued to push further north towards Baghdad, extending the tenuous line through communication to Kuwait, Barbs would take the secondary mission to providing a node into which crucial classes of supply could be flown. So we can see that this whole plan was very, very thought out because this is very, very important because we wanted to make sure that everything was put into place to allow the division to be supported all the way through to accomplish all of their missions. Now, exactly what they're talking about, I can remember that when we crossed that border from Kuwait and into Iraq, and we went through all those bunkers and those tanks, uh, pits that they had put into place, separating the two countries, how they had all this stuff down there put into place. Now, it was like a field gas station. That's what I guess you could say. It was a burned in area and they had the fuel resupply vehicles put in there. And all we simply did was when we were moving from one place to another and we needed to get more fuel, they were put there in place and we just pulled in. We were filled up, restaged and continue to push forward to our next firing position so we can support the rest of the ground elements that were ahead of us to ensure that they had the fire support that they needed. So all this planning and rehearsal that they did was crucial. It was crucial to the division to ensure that all the ammo, the food, the water, everything was supplied to the division in order to make sure that they had everything that they needed. Now, in a couple of episodes ago that we were talking about how the Kuwaitis were actually helping the division and giving them things that they need, they provided the actual tents and everything else that were put into all the different camps, Camp Matilda, Cap Badged and all those different things that they had in place. They provided all that stuff. Along with that, they actually made sure that everybody had fresh water. Now, it wasn't just water. They actually provided bottled water. And they, I remember that they provided cases and cases, pallets full of water for the Marines in the division to ensure that they had enough water for them while they were there in the country of Kuwait. All these bottled waters were also transported from the supply trains that were moving forward to ensure that the division had all of these items in place for them to be able to push forward. So as you can see, the division, you know, they were ready. The plan was set, it was put into place, and they were ready to go. Next week, we're going to talk about the CSSG planning and rehearsal process of how they actually rehearsed it more in detail to make sure that all these things were going to happen. And this is going to be very, very important and vital as we're going to see here in the later on in the reading of the book of how, you know, things happen, things occur, and sometimes things don't work out exactly as planned, especially with all this time and effort that was put into their planning and the way that they rehearsed everything to allow the division to be successful. Hero, Hero Highlight. highlight. Sergeant Daryl Samuel Cole, United States Marine Corps, is another Marine that honorably served in the Marine Corps and earned the Congressional Medal of Honor during World War II. So let's go ahead and get into his citation and see what this Marine did in order to earn that Congressional Medal of Honor. Daryl Samuel Cole was born on 20 July 1920 in Flat River, Missouri, until he graduated from high school in Esther, Missouri in 1938. His main interests in life were playing basketball, hunting, and photography. During his youth, he learned to play the French horn. 
an accomplishment that was later to help shape his destiny. Soon, after his graduation from high school, he joined the Civilian Conservation Corps, where he became an assistant forestry clerk and assistant educational advisor for his company. Leaving the CCC, after one year, he went to Detroit, Michigan, where he found employment as a skiver machine operator for a firm which specialized in the manufacture of engine gaskets. On 25 August of 1941, he enlisted in the Marine Corps Reserve for the duration of the national emergency. He was sent to Paris Island, South Carolina, for training where his proficiency with the French horn marked him as a logical candidate for the field music school. A field music being the Marine Corps equivalent of a bugler. Completing field music school, he was transferred to the 1st Marines, 1st Marine Division. On 7 August of 1942, he found himself wading ashore with his buddies of Company H, 2nd Battalion on the beaches of Guadalcanal, the first American offensive of World War II. Field Music First Class Cole had not been very happy about being assigned as a field music. His buddies had often heard him complain that he had joined a fighting outfit to fight, not blow a horn. Consequently, when a regular machine gunner of his unit fell wounded, he assumed the role of gunner and acquitted himself of such a manner as to win the praise of his commanding officer. Immediately after the Guadalcanal campaign, he submitted a request to have his rating be changed from field music and that he be allowed to perform the regular duties of a private first class in the weapons company to which he was assigned. His request was disapproved due to a shortage of field musics. He returned to the United States on 2 February of 1943, still saddled with his bugle. In March of 1943, he joined the 1st Battalion, 23rd Marines, which were then forming at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, as part of the 4th Marine Division. Waiting until the unit moved to California, he submitted another request to be relieved of his duties as a field music and permission to perform line duties. Again, his request was disapproved for the same reason as before. As the Marine Corps was still short of field musics, in January of 1945, he was on his way overseas for the second time with the 4th Marine Division. During the first engagement of the division at Roy Namar in the Kowajan Atoll, he again, forsaking his bugle, went into action as a machine gunner. Four months later, the 4th Marine Division stormed ashore at Saipan. And somehow, he had managed to get himself assigned to his beloved machine guns. Because of his proven ability in combat, he was designated as a machine gun section leader. During the battle when his squad leader was killed, Cole, although wounded himself, assumed command of the entire squad and acquitted himself in such a manner to be awarded the Bronze Star Medal for his resolute leadership 
indomitable fighting spirit and tenacious determination in the face of terrific opposition. A few days after the Battle of Saipan, he led his squad ashore in the invasion of the neighboring island of Tinan and continued to live up to his fast-growing reputation as the fighting field music throughout the campaign. After the Marine campaigns, he requested a change of warrant for the third time. Pointing out his experience and combat record, he stated that he felt he would be more benefit to the Marine Corps performing line duties than those of field music. This time, his request was approved, and he was redesignated as a corporal. In January 1945, Sergeant Cole, who had been promoted the previous November, sailed with his company for an unknown island that was to become one of the most famous battlefields of American history, Iwo Jima. On D-Day, 19 February, Sergeant Cole led his machine gun section ashore in the assault on Iwo Shifton beaches. One of his squads had hardly reached dry land before their advance was halted by a deadly hail of fire from two enemy positions. Taking stock of the situation, Sergeant Cole crawled forward and wiped out the two positions with hand grenades. His unit continued the advance until they were again halted by fire from three Japanese pillboxes. One of Sergeant Cole's machine guns silenced the most threatening position and then jammed. Armed only with a pistol and one hand grenade, Sergeant Cole made a one-man attack against the two remaining positions. Twice, he returned to his own lines for additional grenades and continued the attack under the fierce enemy fire until he has succeeded in destroying it, the Japanese strong point. Returning to his own squad, he was instantly killed by an enemy grenade. By his one-man attack and heroic self-sacrifice, Sergeant Cole enabled his company to move forward against the remaining fortifications and attain their ultimate objective. For his unselfish act of heroism, the nation's highest military award, the Medal of Honor, was posthumously awarded to Sergeant Cole. The field music, we had desperately wanted to be a great fighting man, had at last achieved his ambition. The Medal of Honor was presented to his wife on 17 April of 1947. Sergeant Cole was buried in the 4th Marine Division Cemetery on Iwo Jima. At the request of his father, his remains were returned to the United States and were re-entered in the Parkview Cemetery near Farmington, Missouri. In addition to the Medal of Honor and Bronze Star Medal, Sergeant Cole was awarded the Purple Heart with Gold Star in lieu of second award. The Presidential Unit Citation American Defense Service Medal, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, and the World War II Victory Medal. Sergeant Cole was one of those Marines that I believe that his destiny was already set for him. He didn't want to be a field music Marine. He didn't want to play that damn bugle. 
That bugle, he didn't want to play it in combat. He tried and tried to change his MOS multiple times. But even though he wasn't the MOS of that field music, he went out and he took charge of that machine gun because he was assigned to a machine gun company to ensure that the mission was going to be successful no matter what. And that's the kind of initiative that builds the Marine Corps. And to me, that is why I spent over 20 years of active duty in the Marine Corps because of camaraderie and because of the fact that when something happens to a Marine in a unit, there's always another Marine right behind him to take that spot of leadership and continue to accomplish the mission that was assigned to them, even though it's not their responsibility. And that's one of the most important things that for me was to ensure that every Marine in every section knew the responsibilities and the jobs of the Marine that was directly above them. So that way, if something happened to that section leader, to the squad leader, to whoever they are, that next person can step up and continue to accomplish the missions that they were assigned to allow them to be successful. The Quarterdeck. This week, we discussed a lot of information regarding the 1st Marine Division in our reading of our book with the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy. And we talked about how the logistical was going to be put into place, how they started doing the rehearsal, and make sure they had a plan for the division to ensure that they had everything that they needed as they left Kuwait and headed off into Iraq. And, you know, as we can see, the division's got a good plan. Next week, we're going to read and see how the division is continuing those rehearsals to ensure that there is no doubt in their mind that everything is going to work according to plan. Now, as we all know, things change, things happen, and things don't always happen the way that you haven't planned. Because, hey, as you guys know, as I know, everything looks amazing on paper. But when you actually get out there and try to do these things, things are going to change. In our hero highlight this week, we talked about Sergeant Samuel Cole, United States Marine Corps, and what he did during World War II there on Iwo Jima to allow him to earn that Medal of Honor. And his story was amazing. The things that he did from being one of those field musicians carrying his little bugle around and how he did not want to do that. That was something that he just simply didn't want to do. He just wanted to be in charge of a machine gun to go out there and do the things with a machine gun. And he did, even as a field musician. He did that, put that bugle aside, jumped on a machine gun when somebody was taken out, and he did it, and finally his dream came true. Next week, Major Henry Alexis Courtney Jr. We're going to look at the story of this major and see what he did in order to earn the Congressional Medal of Honor. I hope everybody has been having a great week. You had great times with your family as we get one day closer to being Friday and enjoying our cold beverages that I know that everybody has in their fridge. Because, hey, I know my fridge is full, the beer is getting cold, and I'm ready for it to be Friday because, hey, Friday, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Until next week, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support you. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 